0: Hi, I'm Limberg Matalieno, and this is FinOps Pod.
1: So do you remember how to do this, Joe? It's been a while.
2: Yeah, I say my name, you say your name.
1: No, I say my name first. Because then you say your name and then you say this is the FinOps pod.
2: And then we say the name of the podcast because people might have just accidentally clicked on this and not and they're like, oh, that's weird. And they like skip the entire interview person introducing themselves in the podcast as well.
1: Exactly. You never know. Yeah. You don't know how Cover people Cover all the bases. They might have been hitting that 15 second fast forward and just met us halfway through.
2: I do that all the time. I hit start and then immediately start skipping. I like being surprised. I like a sense of wonder, what's
1: going on here? Joe Daly listens to podcasts kind of more, not from start to finish, more choose your own adventure, just like randomly fast forward, pop in like, ooh, that was interesting. And then rewind, fast forward to another part. So for every podcast you listen to, it's a very different outcome than probably most people have.
2: You know what? And I think we deliver a great experience of this because I like feeling confused I feel like, you know, if you listen to this podcast,
1: I don't think if you, you listen to the that. podcast, you're confused. But if you listen to our introduction, you're often confused about, <laughs> about what's coming next or why people gave us a platform, meaning you and I,
2: <laughs> to mm-hmm. talk.
1: Okay. <laughs> and if you don't like
2: it, you have a long ago smashed that 15, you've 15 second skip button. 15
1: second skip. seconds skip. Okay, but for those people that don't hit that 15 second skip, hi, I'm Mm -hmm. Stacey Case.
2: And I'm Joe Daly. And this is VinOps Pod.
1: Woo hoo! We did it.
2: There we go.
1: Mm -hmm. I don't know why I always do woo woo or ooh. Like nobody needs my sound effects. Anyways, it's good to be back. It's been a little bit because end of the year, beginning of the year, excuse number two, excuse number three. But I have a kind of a funny story, Joe, about the podcast if you will indulge me.
2: Indulge, granted.
1: Thank you. My parents came out to visit over the holidays and to be fair, neither one of them knows what I do or what I've done for the past 15 years for work, especially when we start talking about cloud, neither one of them. I've explained it multiple times, but there's really no clue. And then I said something about you and I do the introductions for these podcasts and I'm like, here, I'll play you one. So I started to play the end of the year one with the bloopers and the best of they were totally into it especially my dad and then i just started well if you like that we're driving around and there was a couple of times i like i just didn't know what to say so i was playing the podcast sometimes i just played our introductions because i thought it was really funny but my mm-hmm. dad i was afraid was going to start making up like the fact that he knew what finops was even though he really didn't but he's like oh so it's about cost and i'm like hmm Kind of. But yeah, so yeah, my, my parents got a kick out. My parents who have no clue about FinOps got a real kick out of the end of year episode that we did with Ashley. They thought it was very funny, and they really, really thought it was funny that nobody could do the introduction. Like, my dad was, it's like, hard. cackling in the backseat of my truck <laughs> listening to that, like, I think you just have to say it's FinOps pod. <laughs> <laughs> it was very cute, very funny.
2: That's awesome. I love that.
1: Bringing families together.
2: (laughs) I was trying to get my oldest daughter to listen to the podcast. Just, I don't know why, just to torture her. She was like, no, dad, no, no. I'm gonna listen to this other podcast about people trying to make each other blink or something like that. I don't know. We were arguing over what music to listen to. And she's like, dad, can you put on some lo-fi stuff? I was like, lo-fi? And if you don't know what lo-fi music is, Play music over any speaker, and it sounds normal, right? Then put a pillow over the speaker, and then record that noise, and that's lo-fi music.
1: She wants to listen to music like we had to listen to it if we were listening to it muffled. In a dentist chair, like in, yeah. or
2: in an elevator. That's a
1: thing? Oh, God, I feel Yeah,
2: old. that's what the kids are doing now. And so it's so infuriating. I was like, wait, you're listening to music? And she's like, what's that? So I said, what if I recorded pod in lo-fi? And she's like, I'd listen to it. So I'm going to do the outro in lo-fi today to see if my daughter will listen to it at all. Families and podcasts.
1: Social experiment always within the pod. Mm-hmm. All right. So yeah. today, tell me who we have. I'm very excited.
2: Actually, what I did is I went to Dina Solis. And I was like, Dina, who do you want to talk to? And she said, I want to talk to Lindbergh Matliano. Lindbergh is the director of cost optimization at Avalara. He did a lightning talk at X last year on automated governance. And it's really good. Dina wanted to talk to him and he has a really unique name. And it's kind of funny how his name came about. And he shares that story That's right it. off the top.
1: All right. So Dina interviewed him, what are we going to learn?
2: It's a great episode. First off, it's two folks of Filipino heritage and they're talking about how they bring their backgrounds, strengths from their backgrounds into their day to day and also Lindbergh is like myself, a former finance person and I really related, yeah, I really relate to that because he brings up, Hey, sometimes as a finance person, you feel intimidated talking about technology problems and how he goes about doing that. And then going back into the automated governance, he does a great job discussing how to go about starting automated governance, what to start, and shares the lessons learned on how to implement really good governance.
1: Oh, this will be great. I always really appreciate Dina's insight on things too. The great thing about Dina when she talks to somebody is the questions that she asks and she digs a little bit deeper. And I have no doubt that's exactly what's happening here. And then also connecting, and I think, you know, dina does this great i think we do this within the podcast anyway is it's it's the human side of FinOps, right like mm-hmm. what is it yeah. about us as humans that it makes it interesting for FinOps too
2: that's the community part right mm-hmm. you get to know the people in your community not just them as professionals but them as entire human beings all the things all the things. let's jump right into and, it
1: hold on you can say or let's not. jump into Sorry. it right into it again I'm also excited to hear how you're going to do a lo-fi outro. So listen through the whole thing so you can hear that.
2: You can listen to the lo-fi beats of Joe's outro. Boom, 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 boom,
1: (laughs) boom. Again with the sound effects.
2: Your Foley work is amazing. (laughs) Got to cancel that sound effects subscription and just have to (laughs) ask you. (laughs) All right, let's get into it.
3: Can you talk about your name a little bit?
0: Your first name? Yeah, yeah, it's my first name. I'm actually named after Charles Lindbergh, the pilot. My parents, for whatever reason, found that a very good, courageous name, and so they decided to call me Lindbergh. I don't know why they didn't call me Charles. Charles. But I chose Lindbergh and, um, you know, obviously that stuck. But yeah, it's funny if no one's ever met me and they see my first name and then my last name, their first impression is, wow, this is going to be some tall German Italian dude. And then they meet me and I'm like a 5'4 Filipino guy, you know, kind of taken aback. Like, oh, OK, you're not as you're not as tall as we thought you were. That is
3: great. I wanted to interview you. And I remember, I think you introduced yourself in our Slack channel, or maybe I saw you at one of the summits of which are all virtual and we had to see names and sometimes people go on camera. And I, I caught you the same way that I do in every other professional meeting and, and setting is I look for people who kind of look like me. And I wanted to reach out to you first and, and say, Hello, welcome to the community. I don't know if you remember that at all, but I always want to see other Filipino in my profession or in my communities and my spaces.
0: Yeah. And I think I actually even reached out to you on LinkedIn because I think there was an episode cover, you were covered and I'm like, oh, this is a Filipino. So, you know, inadvertently this has become the Filipino broadcast version of Pod. So maybe in the future, we'll do it in Tagalog.
3: I will need Google Translate for that.
0: Me too. But- I'll, I'll bring my right. wife.
3: Right. So, one of the things that yeah. I get asked a lot about, and I don't know if you're comfortable talking about it, but for me, I've been an only this or an only that, only brown person, only Asian, only woman in a room, particularly where I had to talk about facts with authority and have decision makers listen to me. And I wonder if that might be the same for you in terms of being. An only person from your community in any way. And if you have had to think about that while you build your career.
0: Oh, that's a good question. I think in some aspects, yes. It's very apparent to me that I'm probably unique in terms of culturally from other people in this industry, especially in the Seattle area. But also, too, from my background in terms of I come from a finance background. So, going into an engineering meeting, it's a little intimidating, right? Not only that, I'm 5'4. So, (laughs) you know, all of these people already tower over me. Luckily, working remote has kind of leveled that playing field for a bit because no one knows how tall you are in the camera. But it's definitely made my approach to managing cloud spend and interacting with people a lot different because oftentimes I don't want to feel like I'm being overlooked or my opinion is weighed less just because of, you know, my experiences. So I often come with facts ready in hand, probably more prepared than, than most people coming into a meeting.
3: Thank you for answering that in a way that sort of confirms my theory. I really do think that one of the conditions of working in a role like FinOps is that you're a bridge between two skill sets that can sometimes be perceived as competing, but you want them to both succeed. So... I wanted to know if being bicultural and maybe even a little bit bilingual could inform you as you do your job. I've never really
0: thought about it in terms of FinOps and that dichotomy between having a multicultural background. But in some ways, you're right. Like from at least professional background, I come from a finance background. You know, I have a master's degree in technology management and data science that I pursued later on. And part of it, one of the reasons why I pursued that was this perception that I needed to build expertise in this area when I'm talking to other engineers. I'm definitely not a software developer, but I'm a little, I think I have relatively more expertise in in some things, right? And that helps, right, that translate. When you talk about translation between the two, engineering and the finance piece, or not even finance, engineering and the business value, it helps in translating it both because I can explain What the impact of, you know, this choice in compute has on our bottom line to an engineer so they can understand it. And I can turn around and talk to our finance partners and explain why is the cost higher or lower? Also too, I think from a business perspective, I bring a lot of that previous experience that I brought actually brings a lot of things that people don't think about in terms of when you're managing cloud costs. So... It's good. I mean, from a cultural perspective, I never really thought about it that. But yeah, I'm also from the island of Guam. So if you're ever on an island, you have a lot of scarce resources. So I think I have the mindset of trying to make do with the resources that you have, thinking creatively and utilizing that. So yeah, I think the cultural background in my history has probably influenced the way I manage the cloud.
3: I'm so glad that you brought those things up. And also that you brought up that you have a finance background, because I don't think I knew that about you. I want to shift gears a little bit. The little bit that I know about you from your virtual profile is that you were at Microsoft for a few years and then you moved over to Tableau for another few years where I'm sure that you created a lot of value before Avalara found you. And in those roles, you were in basically technical companies and were you in a finance role and well, Was your role more or less the same in each of those, or has it evolved as companies become more agile, become more DevOps informed?
0: So actually, it's not in my LinkedIn, but I started my career at Deloitte as an auditor and a consultant. So I actually have accounting and finance background, but eventually I found that I loved working with technology and I had an affinity towards it. So over the course of my career, I started moving more and more towards technology-related companies, technology-related fields, even the departments, right? So that was a conscious choice for me to make that move. Um, And in that process, I leveraged my finance skills to get into these other departments and learn the technical skills and understanding. And then from there, kind of leverage both. It's interesting, you can learn, right? You can learn a lot of stuff. But what's, what I think I bring from a finance background that you can't easily learn is just a lot of the experiences from being an auditor, doing financial analysis. You can't really take a Udemy course on that and then be up to speed on all of those things. So definitely leveraged a lot of my experiences to move into more of the technical areas. Awesome.
3: I'm curious if you have had to unlearn some of the strength that a finance background might develop. Where I'm going with that is some of my strongest leaders in financial planning have been quite rigid when it comes to investing in technology. And sometimes being successful with that sort of leadership requires a paradigm shift. That's what's in mind when I ask you the question, have you had to unlearn any habits or skills or strengths?
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm constantly trying to unlearn things So I can learn new things, right? I think there is definitely some, some learnings that I've gotten from my years in auditing, right, in terms of understanding the process, the rigidity of the audit workflow and things like that, the rigidity of a financial model. And I wouldn't say I had to necessarily unlearn those things. I actually apply them in my day-to-day job, but through a different lens. So... You're right. Sometimes I think from when you're thinking about investments from a financial standpoint, finance is often taught the old cash flow model and return on investment. All of these KPIs that and acronyms that people will throw at you. um, And it's oftentimes hard to quantify that in terms of technology. If you're not familiar with the lingo, right? what i have though is in terms of the benefit though of understanding what finance wants i can and also understanding the goals of the technology business i can translate some of that back and forth you're right though i remember doing research on how do you quantify an investment in this old ROI CAPM model for technology when some of the returns aren't necessarily immediate or known and I remember coming across something like agile finance, where rather than talking about return on investment of dollars, you're more of like, what is the goal? If you're increasing customers by making this investment, that's what you test for. So I think those are, you know, interesting experiences that I have that I try to unlearn. More really, it's like an amalgamation, I think. I remember talking to someone in finance and they said, you should have some people, some finance people spend some time in engineering because engineering is very complicated, but as chaotic as it may look, it's very actually well-organized. They have sprints, they have documentation, they have playbooks. And you know, when I was in audit, I was just like, wow, these guys are detail-oriented. No, if you go into engineering organization, they're really detail-oriented, right? At a huge scale, because they have to manage a lot of complexity.
3: I love that you said one was was seeing your habits and strengths through a different lens. You're absolutely right. I don't think necessarily you can unlearn anything, but reframing a concept in a new way is how we grow. And what you just said about having them spend some time in an engineering organization, the practices could be the way that we unlock that mindset shift. So now I'm really glad I named you as someone that I've wanted to (laughs) have this conversation with. We got to meet last summer at FinOpsX. We spoke so briefly, but I was excited that you were there for a lightning talk and you were talking a little bit about cloud governance. So, to shift gears a little bit, tell me about how that became part of your role.
0: Cloud governance? Yeah. So, I'm the director of cost optimization at Avalara. And cost optimization is pretty a big, broad term. I'm responsible ultimately for managing the cloud spend, which is, you know, known as FinOps. And then I also manage the engineering software spend. So those often go hand in hand, right? You can't necessarily have a server without some sort of licensing on top of it. As I continue to monitor and govern the cloud, being able to scale out and do that more effectively across multiple accounts and, you know, accounts continue to grow around the organization. It made sense for us to look at automating our cloud governance. Not that we didn't necessarily do some automation initially, right? I started with Avaler two years ago. And one of the first things that we did was, in terms of that inform phase, building a lot of dashboards and looking at the data. Part of that process was creating these dashboards. And in a way, these dashboards were automated governance because the dashboards would refresh daily, it would send out. And all of the stakeholders had access to them to see it. So it's in their inbox. I would look at it and I would notice a spike and then I would follow up with that person. Now, as time went on, we noticed that there were kind of these low-hanging fruit things. Resources that are, I guess, I like to call them zombie resources. They're kind of cool. But there's a lot of zombie resources. And I think historically what I've done was go into the account, download it into Excel, send it out to the person or email or slack and I wasn't getting a lot of traction on that I might get a one or two bytes but not a lot of traction on that and you know we have a lot of accounts it made sense for us to see what we can do from a governance perspective an automation perspective to do that we selected an open source tool and a third-party application to automate the identification of these zombie assets and I have this philosophy of in terms of when we're working with engineers, I want to make it as easy as possible for them to make the right decision. So whatever tools I use, I try to have it connect or utilize the tools that our engineering uses. So if they use JIRA, for example, you know notifications and and things like that are created in JIRA. so there's not this process of getting my email, going to JIRA. Uploading that information and then I signing out like from a governance automation perspective, now it's more of a policy violation is detected. And then it's sent over to Jira and it's assigned to a particular team. And you know, it's funny, like when we talk about automation, I always think, oh man, my automation is not that great. It doesn't do these all automated remediations and things like that. Not yet, but. From where we started to where we're at now, it's like, wow, at least we're giving these violations to the engineers or optimization opportunities for them to start working on. And they can put it in their backlog and then they can groom it. And it fills into that part of their process, right? As I mentioned, engineers have a lot of process to handle all of this complexity. And you have to consider that from an automation perspective. How can we make it easier for our engineers to do stuff and automate the mundane pieces for them so that they're more willing to take advantage of those opportunities?
3: My follow-up to that was, I get a lot of questions from folks about how do you decide what to automate and what governance to automate? And it sounds like you had a very thoughtful process, understanding that part of the process was that feedback loop. You're getting those, you called them two different things, optimization opportunities and violations. They're the same thing, but the way that you talk about it, it has... A particular effect. And so I think you've actually thought through how you want to engage your partner in engineering. What advice would you give to someone who is thinking about, well, how do I decide what governance to automate?
0: Yeah, for us, there was a bit of trial and error, right? I initially automated some policy and it was like spamming and ton of people, so I had to turn that off. But the learning from that was because of that, I decided, well, maybe we should narrow it down, start small. So my advice really to anyone that's exploring automation is start small in terms of what you want to automate and keep the blast radius small, right? We tried to first do notifications because automation is very powerful. It can do a lot of damage if you pick the wrong automation. So we try to keep it small, a small blast radius, and notifications only. And then gather feedback from the stakeholders that are getting the notifications. Because if they're doing something regularly, like if it's a some sort of media asset, and they just go through a process of just deleting it, we could always say, okay, can we just automatically delete it? But we won't know until the stakeholder goes through that process, and oftentimes. You want to treat your environments differently, right? Like your production environment, you definitely want to be very, very sure that whatever automation you put in place is rock solid and is not going to take down your production. In dev, you might be a little more brave or adventurous, but you still need to be able to test these out. And You want to pick the right automations that are impactful to the engineers. My philosophy is once again, going back to what's the impact on the engineer, right? And how can I make their experience better and easier because I'm asking of them their time. So I want to make sure that it's worthwhile.
3: That's awesome to hear Here. someone who's responsible for cost optimization, put people first, put the engineers first. I think a really great sign of leadership. We talk about in the FinOps foundation, how, how policy and governance fall in a domain of organizational alignment, the alignment though can really vary, you know, depending on what your organization's core purpose is. In your experience, where you've had good governance or good policies that were created to to get that partnership to progress, how would you say the business unit or the business organization saw the value of good IT governance or good cloud governance?
0: I think... The success of the program is really dependent on the culture. I think you talked about organizational alignment. That's essentially part of the culture, right? I've been actually very lucky to be part of organizations where cost optimization was part of the culture. And I want to be careful too about talking about cost optimization because oftentimes people think... When you see cost and optimization, it's always about cutting costs. But the reality is, it's ensuring you have the resources that you need at the right time. right? So having overcapacity doesn't benefit the company, doesn't benefit the customers. Just having those dollars locked in. So I think it's very important just to have a very cost-aware culture. And that's one of the things I look for in any organization is really, is this just an exercise in... Cutting costs, or is there something bigger? Because I can go in three months and cut costs and walk away and probably collect a lot of money right on that. But I want to be able to go beyond that. I want to, at least from my capabilities, make the organization better and more efficient so they can turn around and use that available funds to invest in other areas. Invest in new products, new features in teams that may be underfunded.
3: I agree. We've talked about, I think, a very FinOps definition of cost optimization. What can you say about FinOps to make it exciting (laughs) to someone who is new to the (laughs) topic? That's a challenge. Everyone should have to answer that.
0: Joe's laughing. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I took a bunch of pictures and posted on Instagram for my family. And one of was a slide that was from the reInvent conference. And my comment was, oh, really excited about this. And my kids and my sister were like, you are such a nerd. But my daughter asked me what I do. I often tell her I solve problems. And I imagine myself as a detective in this FinOps space, trying to find some missing, you know, set of money, right? Like it, that's really exciting. I find. If you like finding money, sure, it's not your money, but if you like finding money in general, just finding that unused resource or that savings is like, yes, right? Like I get excited finding you know, a few coins in the, in the couch, finding, you know, millions of dollars in savings. I'm like, wow, um, here you go. Now you can go spend it elsewhere. That's probably all I can say is if you're excited about trying to solve something, looking for puzzles, I mean, FinOps is where to go. Lots of puzzles.
3: A hundred percent agree. It is definitely an area that never runs out of puzzle.
1: First Lord, going up.
2: All right, the Lo Fi Outro. You know, we didn't plan this, but this was a very family-centric episode of the FinOps Pod. Stacy telling the story about her parents and her dad laughing at our intros, me talking about how my daughter won't listen to the podcast unless I put a lo-fi filter on it. And Lindbergh, you know, brought up his parents and how they came about with his very memorable name. So look at that kind of theme. We didn't plan it, it just happened. Themes happen sometimes. So that's really fun. Thank you, Lindbergh, sharing your stories with us. Automated governance helps scale out your FinOps policy and sharing your insights and lesson learned on that. Thank you, Dina Solis, as always, bringing your perspectives and your thoughtful questions and leading us through that conversation. Fantastic work, as always. Really enjoyable to listen to. Thank you as always to Stacy Case and Mr. Case and Mrs. Case for listening to the podcast. Thank you, Maggie, my daughter, for listening to this outro. I'm sure you skipped everything that happened before this, but thank you for listening to it. That is the first episode of the 2023 calendar year. Thank you to all involved. Look out for 2023. Go get yourself educated, go get yourself trained, go get yourself some FinOps. Ooh, that might be a good ending quote. Go get yourself some FinOps. Maybe we'll switch that later, but I'm gonna stick with this. That's the end of this episode. Keep on FinOpsing.